KMTT, Kimitzion Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Shoftim. Hey, Elul. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef ben Chaim Shmuel. And I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. We'd like to welcome back all our listeners after Bain Hazmanim. Um... I was a little bit miffed about the whole Ben Azmanim thing because our listeners are people who go to work and want to listen to a Shi'ur Torah and perhaps many of the speakers on KMTT, the lecturers, have some sort of Ben Azmanim. They may not be around Yeshiva in order to submit their their recordings, but the listeners need to hear Shi'ur. Needless to say, I'm not the person who makes the decisions, and uh, the best of my knowledge, we've been on break from KMTT for a long time. To the best of my knowledge as well, uh, Irv Tavori will be continuing with me uh, in the, on the Erev Shabbat program, uh, and if I'm mistaken, I'll only find out after I've recorded this shear, and I'm going to behave as if Irv Tavori is with me, and we'll welcome back to Eretz Yisrael after a year of shlichut in England. El, it's El here, and uh, for those of us who haven't noticed that it's El, um, we started saying the David Hashem Vishi, we've started blowing the shofar. It's a unique year in which, due to the leap year, we all get Chodesh El. And those there are certain years that uh, we're busy taking care of the kids in the summer, or if we're kids, we're busy having holiday. And and the first day of September in Israel, or the first day after Labor Day in North America, is a week before Rosh Hashanah, and we have no time to prepare for Rosh Hashanah. This year, Rosh Chodesh Elul, the kids are in school. For those adults who need space from their kids in order to retrospect, and for those students who need to be in school in order to be serious, they're in school for a whole month of Elul before Rosh Hashanah. It's a time to utilize Chodesh Elul. And Chodesh Elul gets us talking about tshuva. and gets us talking about introspection. gets us talking about a certain routine. And before I go on, I'd like to relate a story. A... I will attempt to remove all uh, facts that will reveal about this who who the story is. A student of a rabbi told the rabbi that they did not identify with tefillah, and they couldn't identify with it, and the rabbi to make a long story short, told this person they should stop davening for a couple of years, and in in a couple of years they'll see that uh, they're really thirsty for davening and they need davening, and and, and then they'll be able to identify with davening. The... I'll admit that... uh, Davening is an experiential th- experience, and 
Therefore, they're not necessarily logical explanations and and a cognitive help that could be given to a person who has a problem identifying with tefillah. I do have issue with the solution, however. When we lack identification with something, is the way which we want to identify with it. Is the way to identify with it by pulling away from it? The more intimate we know something, the more chance we will have of identifying it with it. The more alienated we are from something, the less of a chance we have of identifying with it. I like to point this out to my students in the realm of Talmud Torah. The more Torah we learn, the more Torah we know, the more Torah we understand, the more we identify. The the more we have a lack of a knowledge, a lack of understanding, the more problems will arise and are, we'll have more problems solving these problems. Therefore, if we don't identify with our Judaism, with our tefillah, with our learning... The solution isn't running away from it until magically sometime down the road in two years it'll all come back to us but perhaps through perseverance and engaging tefillah, Talmud Torah, Judaism as a whole through that we will find identification. I say this within the context of Chodesh El. For many years Chodesh Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, was a time to get through in order to get to Sukkot. Or maybe even in order to get to the meal after Yom Kippur was over. I had my issues with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. I didn't feel identified with it. I didn't feel that I understood what was going on. I had questions. I didn't have any answers to. As things are, I'm pretty sure if I wanted to, I could find out what the questions were. I don't know if I know the answers, but I know that I'm not as troubled by the questions anymore. When you're in this situation, year after year after year of going through the motions despite the lack of identification you start questioning and wondering what are you doing? Why am I going through this routine? And perhaps this is the part that lacks the identification. Why am I going through this process of our Shani Yom Kippur when I know as we say on the Kol Nidre prayer, Yom Kippurim Zed, Yom Kippurim Aba, We're going to be doing Yom Kippur again in a year from now. We're going to go through this whole thing. We're going to reach the heights. We're going to be atoned. We're going to be clean. We're going to be pure. We're going to go into Sukkot without any sins. And then, come next, Chodesh we're going to start doing Slichot again, Hashem Nubagadnu. What is the point of all of this process? Who are we kidding? The best, pardon me, the best answer that I ever heard to this question was a mashal. It was from a rabbi who was a 
who served in the tank corps in the Israeli army. And he said, every week at the end of the week in the tanks, the tanks are cleaned thoroughly. Now, cleaning of the tank is a many-hour process, which gets the, the person in the tank, the people working on the tank, extremely dirty. And they clean and clean, and they can't go home until they've been inspected and their inspection passes the standard. And that gives us the motivation to clean the tank, but the person who is cleaning the tank week after week has to scratch himself and say, what are we doing this for? Why do we clean the tank so thoroughly as if the the tank is not going to get filthy within a day or two and we're going to be at the same place in a week from now? And the answer to this person's question, I think, is clear to all of us. Well, that's true if you clean the tank, it, it will get dirty again, but if you don't clean the tank, it'll get so dirty that parts will just simply start malfunctioning. The tank can handle a week's worth of dirt without a good cleaning, but you start piling on the dirt and never clean it up, well, we're going to be in serious trouble. On that level, there's a part of Chodesh Elul, of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur, of the whole process that we go through, which is very true to this idea. There is not a righteous person in the land who is so righteous that he won't even sin. You're right. We're going to go through the process of introspection, of tshuva, of trying to be better. Until Yom Kippur and beyond. With the knowledge... That next year there will be Yom Kippur again. And we will be going through this process again. And we will be saying, Ashabnu Bagadnu again, Achet Shachatanu again. Then why is it, why are we doing this? Because the system needs it. We need to clean out the system once a year. We need to strive higher once a year. Because we sink down often. And if we don't raise ourselves once a year and reach a balance we're going to keep on falling and falling down yes we fall down during the year yes we sin yes we'll have what to say at the end of the year on Yom Kippur but we'll go through the process because we'll clean out the system so the next year we're able to clean out our system again if we never clean out our system Year after year goes by without ever clearing out the system. It'll be very hard to ever clear out the system, to ever reach a good place. We'll be constantly going down, constantly getting bogged down in our sins, not being able to see the top anymore. These words, this idea, was a tremendous comfort for me. We go through the process, we cleanse ourselves, we're not claiming that we're perfect anymore than we were in the past. We're not. But we can be proud of our cleansing. We can take that seriously. 
We can go through the routine even though you might fail at sins again during the year, sins that we were failing in the past and continue to fail. But we're going to give an effort now. We're going to raise ourselves up to a better level. Now, this goes back to the story that I began with. If the person were to disengage and say, I don't identify with this chuva process of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur, of Chodesh Elul, I don't see why we're doing it, and the person disengaged, didn't get involved in it, what are the chances that he will find some meaning? What are the chances he will find some identification? The chances are quite slim. He's not engaging it. He's not dealing with it. He's not even thinking about it. But all the more so, the difficulty that he will face when he does try to pick himself up and he realizes that he does need a change after all those years that went by that he didn't do a cleaning job. And now all that dirt has piled up, all the sins have piled up, and they've never had a chance to escape. We need to strive to be better. And I think it's okay if we come to a recognition and come to a point that we're not necessarily going to be consistently better, but we're going to strive to be better. Striving to be better is an important characteristic in itself. It helps us clean ourselves. It helps us realize that we have better places to be. But we must engage. We must go through the process. At this point, we'll take a brief break before summing up the show. This week will be the yard site of Rav Reuven Margolios, who was Nifter when Zion Elul Tavshin Lamed Aleph. Rav Reuven Margolios was born in Europe in the city of Lvov, in the city of Lvov, on Zion Kislev Tavresh Nun. As a child, he learned by people that today are not as well known. He, but he was known as a child prodigy who learned by a fellow, Rav David Tunis. He obviously <coughs> excuse me, was quite bright and was very interested in writing from an early age. He wrote one of this farm that he wrote later in life was called Margolios Hayam, a sefer in Masecha Sanhedrin. In Margolios Hayam and Daflamid Gimel, he mentions that he wrote a kuntris, he wrote a pamphlet on Choshen Mishpat Simen Chafei at the age of 11 when he was studying by this Reb Davitunis. He remained as a private student of Rabbanim in Lvov and lived in Lvov for quite a while. At the age of 15, his father passed away and Reb Ruven Magolis was married at the age of 18. His wife became ill Sometime later, passed away, and he had no children from this marriage. 
while he was in Lvov, he had to make a living, and he opened up a bookstore. This bookstore was a different style of a Svarim store that we're that today we're not as familiar with, but I actually had seen such Svarim stores in my youth. It was a Svarim store where people would gather and learn. People would talk to each other. Rabbanim Tamri Chachamim would come to the city, come into this <coughs> Svarim store, drink a cup of tea, and sit there and discuss Torah. One of the people who remembered this bookstore, Rav Yitzhak Raphael, the son-in-law of Rav Maimon, the, wrote about this particular bookstore. He said, I don't know if Rav Ruben Magalis ever sold any books. It was a bookstore which was a center of Merkaz of Torah. Obviously, there was a business going on there as well. Rav Ruben Magalis was a specialist, especially in finding rare svarim and dealing with svarim that were hard to get and to supply them to other people. While he was in Lvov, he also became involved in Mizrahi. He attended Mizrahi conventions and became one of the leaders of the Mizrahi movement. He had a big correspondence with many, many people, including Rav Cook in Eretz Yisrael. He desired very much to go to Eretz Yisrael, and he, in 1934 or 35, he did come to Eretz Yisrael. He was never involved in Rabbanut, in the Rabbinate. He did not want to be involved in the Rabbinate, Although he was offered positions by Rav Kook as well as others, he said that he wanted to be involved in business. We'll discuss that again later. When he came to Eretz Yisrael, he went to see Rav Kook. Now, if we remember that 1934 and 1935 was the year, Rav Kook was nifter in 1935 and he was sick. So they relate, Rav Hadari tells the story how Rav Ruven Magalios came to visit Rav Kook, who, although being ill and in bed, made a strong effort to get up and made a bracha shechianu when he saw Rav Ruben Magalios. Of course, the very fact that Rav Kook made such a bracha showed his esteem for Rav Ruben Magalios, but also was an interesting halachic issue whether you're supposed to say shechianu when a person with whom you've had contact only through writing but have never seen before. Rav Ruben Magalios remarried in Eretz Yisrael. He came on Aliyah and did remarry, but unfortunately he had no children from his second wife as well. He went to work in the library in, of which was called the Rambam Library of Tel Aviv. Not only did Rav Ruben Magalis love Sfarim so much that he wanted to be surrounded by Sfarim, not only did he want to receive a parnasa, not from Rabbanus, not from being involved in the rabbinate, but he wanted to work for a living. He saw in this work, in the library, a life's mission. The, especially after the Second World War, when he felt that so many Sfarim were lost, and so many things were forgotten, he wanted things to be remembered. He wanted to try to get the Sfarim, organize the Sfarim in such a way that they would continue for posterity, live on in posterity. He even collected pictures of Gedole Yisrael and thought it was very important that people should see the pictures of Gedole Yisrael to remind them of who they were. When people, uh, certain Hasidic Rebbes, refrained from taking 
their own picture, Rabbi Ruven Magalis would mention that Rabbi Meir Shapiro, the Rav of Lublin, was very insistent upon people taking pictures in order that people should look and see what Gedolim look, looked like. When uh, at the Knesia Gedola, there was a whole discussion whether they should take pictures or not at the first Knesia Gedola, and the Lublin Rav, Rabbi Meir Shapiro, said that of course they should take pictures. And he mentioned the Medrash that when Bnei Yisrael were in Egypt, in Mitzrayim, they remembered the Dudmut Yukna Shal Yaakov. They remembered the image of Yaakov, which, according to the Medrash, helped them maintain their Jewish identity. And Rav Meir Shapiro pointed out that when Avram was alive, it wasn't, so, when, it wasn't important to have his picture. When Yitzchak took over, as it were, as being an Av from Avram, as long as there's one of the Avos still alive, you don't need a picture. When Yaakov, Ke'ilu, took over from Yitzchak, you don't have to have a picture of Yitzchak either. But he said, when Yaakov was Niftar, that's when you need an image of Yaakov. There, is no more, there are no more Avos, and we can only remember Avos. Meir Shapiro said, we have to remember the Gedolim, because we don't have Gedolim like that. So we should remember them, even by taking their picture, and, and, and keeping their pictures. And therefore, he tried to convince people to take their pictures. I mentioned before that Rebuving Magalios did not merit, did, lo zacha, did not have children. But his legacy is found in the enormous amount of svarim, the amount of literature that he left behind. If we would just even mention the publications that were printed by Rav Ruvain, we wouldn't have time until the end of the broadcast. Recently, a few years ago, a machon was established for the purpose of reprinting and re-establishing the many of the Svarim of Rav Margolios. Many of them are very small monographs on certain topics. For example, he wrote short biographies of many, many people who otherwise would not have been known as well in within Jewish literature. For example, he wrote the, a short biography of the Arachayim HaKadosh, the Reb Chaim ben Atar. He wrote uh, about the son of the Rambam, Rabbeinu Avram ben Arambam, and he even printed some of the tshuvas of Rabbeinu Avram in that edition. He wrote a small monograph about the Ramban. He wrote and edited an edition of Rabbi Yaakov Mimarvaish, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, who wrote a sefer called Shelotu Tshivot Men Hashemayim. This is the famous book about Tshuvis that this man said he dreamt at night, discussed the issues with Malachim, and he printed it. And in the introduction, Rav Ruvain has a tremendously important discussion about the merit, what it means to have Tshuvis that were not based on human endeavor, but rather based on some sort of a, a, a of dreams. And that monograph is extremely important in understanding the relevance of dreams to halacha. He was interested in Hasidish Jews as well, and therefore wrote monographs about many Hasidish people, including, for example, Rav Meir Premishlaner. Besides those monographs, he wrote many, many books about isolated topics. For example, he wrote a little book called Lecheker Sheimot V'Chinuyim B'Talmud, some sort of a study about certain names and nicknames in the Talmud. 
But let's get to the main works that he wrote. Not just the smaller monographs, but more essential works. Perhaps the two or three most important works, the Sefer that I mentioned before in Sanhedrin, Margolios Hayam, is a Sefer of Arot, rather short Arot, on the entire Masechet Sanhedrin. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only Sefer that he wrote really on a Masechet, but it shows unbelievable Bakiyas. Reb Ruven Magalias was known as the Baki of the generation. They said about him the phrase, Kol Razlo Anislay. Nothing was missed by him. He, everything, the entire gamut of Torah literature was known by him. His, the Sefer that shows his hand, not just in Halacha, but in the world of Machshav, of Kabbalah, was his parish, uh, tremendous parish in the Zohar, Three volumes were printed called Nitzotze Zohar, his parish on, on the Zohar. He also wrote He'aros on the Shulchan Aruch, which is called Nefesh Chaya. And those He'aros, although they were written a long time ago, in the time of the First World War, were recently reprinted. Much of the information that we have about Rabbi Ruven Magalas is printed in that, in the introduction of the new edition of the Nefesh Chaya. And as I said, I could go on and on about important Svam he wrote, for example, the Perush on Sefer Hasidim, Mikar Chesed, and it's almost uh, impossible to even mention all the books that he wrote. He was a frequent lecturer at Kinus Torah and many of his Shiurim of Kinus Torah were printed in the uh, editions of the of the Kinnus Torah Shabbat in Mosad Rav Kook. he was a very close friend of Rav Maimon's, who was the the who was the uh, organizer of this Kinnus. I wanted to mention a an interesting uh, point that I thought of a few days ago when I decided to speak about Reuven Magalis this week. I opened up the Sefer of Magalia Sayam, and I read the introduction. He, told, he tells there about the famous Gemara in Masechus Tanis, where the Gemara tells a story about two people, Ilfa and Rabbi Yochanan. They both decided at one point to go to work, but they were a little hesitant because after all, they are leaving the world of the Torah to go involved, to get involved in, in a type of work. So, the Gemara relates that Rabbi Yochanan heard a voice that said, how can you leave the world of Chaye Olam, the world of eternity, to be involved in Chaye Shah and something temporal. And Rabbi Yochanan went back. And Rabbi Yochanan became the Rosh Hashiva, became the Melech, became the ruler, the Manmalchi Rabbanan. And Ilfa, who although he was known as a great Hamid Chacham, Ilfa was not appointed in to that position. When Ilfa came back, they mentioned to him that had you not gone to the world of business, but you had stayed in the world of Torah, they would have appointed you to to be the Melech. You would have been appointed as the head. And Rav Margolios quotes this story and he made a comment. He said, Ilfa did not want to be Melech. Ilfa did not want to be 
the Rav. Ilfa, who was a great Tamid Chacham, who knew a lot, as we'll point out in a moment, Ilfa wanted to be the person who would be involved in Melacha, in some sort of a business, but nevertheless he wanted to show that he was a big Tamid Chacham as well. And the Gemara says at the end, Ilfa got up and he said, anybody who wants to ask me anything about the Tosefta, about the Brysos, about the Mishnayis, I will tell them the answer, I will tell them the sources for it. When I saw this story, I thought, this is what I want to say in this podcast. This is the image that I understand of Reb Ruvay Magalias, a person who was a major Tamid Racham, a great Bucky, but he did not want to enter the world of Rabbanus. Because of reasons for Parnassah, he decided that he's going to go into business, whether it be in Lvov opening up that Svarim store, whether it be later on in life being the librarian of the Rambam Library in Tel Aviv. This is what Rabbi Magalis wanted to do. And this story that he quoted in the introduction to Magalias Ayam was actually a description of his life. Interestingly enough, after I had thought of this by myself, I then attained a copy of the Nefesh Chaya, this new edition that I mentioned, which has an introduction to the biography of Rabbi Magalias. And of all the things they could have written, they chose that same story. And I quote, this was Arav. As a young fellow, he was forced to leave the, the base medrash, and he had to open his own store, but he always kept all his spare time for learning and for research into Torah. And the same way that Ilfa wrote down all his notes and all his sources, that and which could be used as a source to resolve many issues, so was Rabbi Ruven Magalios. As I said, he had no children, but the amount of svarim that he left, the amount of literature that we owe to Rabbi Ruven Magalios is almost innumerable. He was nifter on Zayin Elul, Tavshin Lamed Aleph, Yehei Zichro, Baruch, the Machon that was established will continue to publish these svarim, which are an important nechas, an important property in any Torah library. In all those years where the Yamim Norim were a difficult time for me, I'm confident that I wouldn't have reached a place where I was comfortable with Elul and the Yamim Noraim without having gone to Shul all those years. I could have put the Slichot book down, I could have put the Machsor book down, I could have decided this is just not for me. And said, I'll dive in the rest of the year. But I didn't. I engaged the tefillot, the slichot. I engaged it. And by engaging it, I was able to finally make breakthroughs to, where, to a place where I'm comfortable with it now. I think the lesson here is El is daunting. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are daunting. The solution to becoming comfortable with them is not running away from them. 
by engaging them. Shabbat Shalom.